Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. For today's bonus episode, I've asked theatre professional and author Nick Bromley to come and talk about his book Theatre Law. As you will hear, Nick has had a long career in theatre as a stage manager and as company stage manager, where he has worked on UK tours and many London West End shows. Taking years of acquired knowledge, he then created a dictionary of terms, facts, myths and stories associated with the theatre, ranging in time from Aeschylus to Andrew Lloyd Webber and alphabetically from Abelard and Eloise to Zorro. It's all done from a place of practical experience and love of the art and with a very humorous eye on the subject. You wouldn't normally read a dictionary from end to end, but I did and I was certainly educated and entertained in the process. But before we spoke about theatre law, I asked Nick to tell me about his career in theatre, which started in the early 1960s and continues to this day. So he has seen too many changes to count and can remember a time when theatrical life was both very different and yet alarmingly similar to the way it still is today. So here is a first-hand account of a backstage life, which might also just answer some of those questions which, like me, you probably have about how things work and worked behind the scenery. I'm going to go back to the beginning. Um, my name is Nick Bromley and um I, I joined the theatre professionally in now this is going to this is going to um, upset several of your listeners who probably don't believe there was a, a an earlier century but this was in 19 about 1964 yes it was it was 6 no it was earlier 63 i um i decided to to go into the theatre and become a, a stage manager. That was the that, that was the, the purpose. So I, I joined uh, the Central School of Speech and Drama, which had a technical course, and we did that for two years. Uh, but my first job was with um, Richmond Theatre, um, which in Surrey, which at the time um, was a weekly rep, which was very interesting. And I worked as a stage stagehand there. Then, having managed to... Uh, not be expelled from Central, uh, and clutching a small certificate. Uh, I joined Equity, which you had to do in those days because it was a closed right. shop, and um, went on, uh, got my first job, which was almost guaranteed because there were, it was a much smaller profession in those days. There were far fewer people, in, especially backstage. Uh, there were always people who wanted to act, but there wasn't this profusion of actors there is today. Mm-hmm. Or, in for that matter, uh, the amount of work which which television has brought about. Um, so, sadly, rather than theatre. Um, so, my my first job, in fact, was at the Malvern Festival Theatre, which um, uh, had reopened after after a hiatus brought on by the war. And uh, Malvern was a very interesting venue in the thirties and twenties because it was where. Uh, the plays of, of, of Bernard Shaw were often first produced, right? And uh, Barry Jackson from Birmingham ran ran it then, the Malvern Festival Theatre, and they thought they'd revive it, and they did. And in honour of Shaw, we we did uh, "You Never Can Tell," and also J.B. Priestley, of course, was um, was associated with Malvern, so we did an Inspector Calls and another an, another play of his, and, and and a couple of other plays as well. Uh, and then from there, 
and and the thing is that when you when you joined equity which was of course it was a closed shop as i think i've said already mm. um you had to work uh you had to do 26 weeks out of town before you could work in london you had to each week counted as a as a sort of stamp you know they stamped the weeks um so i couldn't get a job in london or or knew how to at the time um but uh i i saw an ad for an asm needed for the tour of my fair lady which had just finished this is in in 1965 and it had just finished at the drury lane and it had been su such a successful show that they'd sent out two versions or two productions at the same time and uh i was with what was called the national tour uh tony Britton uh was professor higgins wonderful a wonderful higgins and uh, uh, I joined them up in Newcastle and for about a year and a half and, and carried on with them. But it was a wonderful experience because it, it took me all around the country and on a big musical. And it was a, it was a very, a very large scale production. And it, it, it gave me in, in, invaluable uh, knowledge, as it were, from there. Of course, it was it'd been put out by HM Tenants. Um, HM Tenants asked if I'd come and ASM in London. Uh, because I had my full equity ticket, as it were. And um, I joined a production of The Rivals at the Haymarket Theatre uh, with Sir Ralph Richardson and uh, Margaret uh, Margaret Rutherford. Ah, uh, and that, that brought me to London. After that, there, were, uh, there was another show called Cactus Flower, which uh, Tony Britton again and Margaret Layton were in. And then um, after that, I thought that it was time for me to try and move on, but it was terribly difficult because ASMs or assistant stage managers, um, you know, were, were quite often, you'd meet them, they'd be quite often in their 50s or 60s because the openings weren't there to progress up. You became a, DA, a deputy stage manager or an ASM and you usually stayed that way for your career. And I, I, I didn't really want to carry on as an ASM. So um, I answered an advert in the stage, which was for a stage manager to go out to uh, South Africa. And um, I, I went out uh, and joined a company a company called Tareen and Rubin, who put on shows all around the Cape and in, you know, in, in Natal and and in the Orange Free State and, and up to the uh, up to Pretoria and Johannesburg. Um, and, and that again was invaluable because it, we did, I think it must have been, it was two years, did about 16 shows, um, ranging from all from plays to, uh, to review to music hall, uh, to musicals. So it was, it was a terrific experience. Yeah. That must have been a real adventure to travel that far in those oh, days. Oh, it was. I mean, it, it really was, you know, because the thing was, I, I, I was totally on my own, uh, and quite often, um, literally, uh, with a company, and so you'd you'd have a touring company, and uh, th th there'd be me, and possibly a mate or two who um, mm. who I who I found said, so "Quickly, come and be an ASM, come and help on this show." You know, like a, a Francoise Hardy came out with a, a you know and topped a variety show, and Shelley Berman and people like that, and um, you'd you'd arrive on the Monday and get in. Uh, to these theatres and open on Monday night, so the, there wasn't much time for subtlety. You put the lights up and you um, and you whacked it on and and hoped um, 
the audience didn't uh, see any of the mistakes which obviously happened. Which, as I understand it, is exactly what the ASM and the DSM are there for, to make things sure everything happens like Exa- it should. Exactly. I mean, their job is, I mean, to be, to be, to be serious, you know, the, um, the ranking order, uh, you start off as an ASM, an assistant stage manager, then you become, if you want to, a, a deputy stage manager. And the deputy stage manager is the person who calls for show. I.e., they sit in the prompt corner, um, they press all the buttons, they get the actors, they call the actors to the stage, they they communicate with the sound and with the, the lighting departments as to when and where the the lights come up, and if necessary, when the when the actors have forgotten their lines, which mm-hmm. does happen, mm-hmm. uh, you have to prompt. <laughs> uh, uh, not an enviable job um, yeah. because some actors hate it. Or others continually wish wish to have a prompt. So you're you're you know it's it, it's feast, it's feast or famine. And you must have to know the show really well while you're concentrating on other things as well as oh, yes, where you, you are in the script. Yes, you. I mean, your eye has to be on the script, and, and and a script you know is opened up, and you've got the you've got the, you've got the dialogue on the left and on the right hand side. You have the corresponding cues when they come up, mm. uh, and or or effects or entrances exits anything special which happens in the show or all, all the technical aspects of it yeah so although they're often i think considered as people who do the, the lowest of the low jobs in some ways they are actually the linchpins of making the whole show run smoothly oh, oh yes yeah i mean it, absolutely i mean unless you have a, a you know a proper stage management team um shows shows would disintegrate yeah. uh it, it would be like the play that goes wrong but only for real you know <laughs> Uh, if you know what I mean, I mean, um, they can, uh, I mean, and, and a bad stage management team could completely ruin a show, completely ruin a show. And it does, you know, that does happen occasionally. And I guess that's it got even just more complicated in recent years where shows have got so technical. Yes. Uh, and they rely on things like very quick and complicated scene changes and the like, uh, costume changes as well, no doubt. So that yep. must mean the team has has got bigger in the stage. Bigger, and it's it's also it's also diverse uh, diversified because you have, for example, on a musical, you will have a uh, you'll probably have an automation department these days uh, because so much of so much scenery is moved by automation. Uh, this is a practical aspect of theatre because w- if you can automate a set, you cut down on the staff you need. Uh, whereas in the olden days, you had to have you know big, big backstage crews to shift mm. very heavy scenery. If it's if it can be if it can be automated, put on a truck and moved moved by by the press of a button, you're saving hundreds of you know thousands of pounds on a production it's all to do with with cost yeah. i mean that is i mean everyone says you know theater is you know wonderful you know but, but deep down you know it 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 its it, it success is is dictated apart from you know a good script it's dictated by how you can mount one sufficiently to make it feasibly economically mm. make it, uh, yes if that makes sense, yes, a, a pretty co- complicated calculation that must be. Uh, yeah, it, it's very. It it has to be. It has to be very carefully worked out. I mean, um, spontaneity is is the least thing which happens yeah. in a, uh, when creating a stage show. Yeah, everything has to be worked out in advance and very carefully worked out. 
not only the direction, but the, the, the mounting of the show, the design of a set, the costing of it, which a, a production manager has to has to. Mm. That's where he earns his money. And of course, you made it back from South Africa and, and have been involved in some really big um, London West End shows over the years. Yeah, over, uh, that, uh, very, very luckily, um, just before I left South Africa, I was um, I was working for a very short time because they knew I was going away uh, on um, a production of The, the Boyfriend oh, yes. uh, for Michael Codron Limited. Uh, and they, so, um, my, in those days, um, uh, uh, M- Michael Codron was and still is yeah. you know, one of the most important London theatrical producers, English, English yes. producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, for, for, for straight plays, comedies, dramas, tragedies, if you like, uh, not not really for musicals. Uh, but Michael had done uh, he, he he did do the um, the boyfriend, mm-hmm. which was very successful. It was a revival, and um, was very successful. Cheryl Kennedy playing uh, playing uh, Polly. Anyway, after that, then Michael had so many shows coming in that I worked for him for about eight years, uh, which was a terrific, again, a terrific experience. And, so you're uh, moving around the different London West End theatres as di- shows come and go. Different theatres here, there, and yeah. everywhere. Yes, um, and uh, and then um, in the early 80s I, I i took a took a couple of years out to, to take a breather because it was it's hard work you know you, you you join a show and in those days it was quite often run of contract run of you know run of, run of play mm. your contract meant that you you know you, you signed up for the duration you could get out of a play but then that was generally to go and do another long run so you you worked you, you know you earned your money because you worked for a, if it was a success for a minimum of 12 months um, before you could possibly leave, or even 15 months. Uh, so I was a bit tired of of every single, you know, working mm. every, every single week, as it were. Uh, so I took time out and, and went into conferences for a bit, but I didn't really like conferences. I wanted, I, I, I liked the, the shows themselves, the, the creation of them, and the, uh, and, and the content, of course, because I was, I'd been lucky during these years to have worked with people like Alan Aitbourne and, uh, you know, playwrights of that caliber, yeah. um, uh, which was, uh, was, was wonderful. So, um, and then when I re- came back into the theatre, I, I decided, well, no one else would really, <laughs> apart from what I was doing, I thought it was, it was probably easier to get a job knowing, doing what I mm. knew. Uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to get onto a show called the pa- uh, apart from a few shows and then the Pirates of Penzance, Penzance came up uh, which Michael White put on at Drury Lane and it was slightly revolutionary because it was a, a Joe Pat production his, his production which has been in the park in, course, in New yes. York yeah. and the, the, what was what was revolutionary was that the copyright to Gilbert and Sullivan had come to an end, mm-hmm. as it were, and therefore he was able to, to Joe Pat was able to to reorchestrate the music, uh, which he did, and so the score was, I want to say jazzed up. It was bounced up, uh, and very successfully mm-hmm. too. So we had um, Tim Curry as the pirate, oh, and it was a it was a super. It was a superb production, a superb production, and 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 still, you know, 
talked of to this day. And, and, that, and that led me into, into the world of musicals, which I, I hadn't done for about 10 years, and, um, and led on to various other musicals uh, like Starlight Express and uh, Crazy For You and uh, Damn Yankees with Jerry Lewis and Grease and Saturday Night Fever and things like that. King and I, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, Woman in White, and then Onwards and Upwards. Right, that hardly sounds like upwards anyway from there. That's a fine list of productions, <laughs> especially Starlight Express. That must have been an interesting one. I was company manager. So on musicals, the uh, d- during the, my, 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 my play period, as it were, I was company stage manager. Uh, but from uh, the time I started on but from, from musicals, they, re- they had realised by then, because the musicals were getting more complicated, bigger mm. um with more machinery more things basically more things that could go wrong uh, a stage manager could could not combine the role of company manager so which was a, a, a blessing i think because I, I i i wasn't a particularly good stage manager and um wonderfully organized and i i wasn't wonderfully organized but i i, I could do the, the, the company management job i believe quite well and so i stayed as a company manager from there on up until today yes <laughs> still yes you you are still working we should say i mean you've just proved you have a fantastic memory for everything that you've done and off the back of all that i guess you you wrote a book um, or rather i should say you compiled a dictionary yes um you're absolutely right um th- this was um this, this this came about because um i've over the years i've I'm a great book collector and I, you know, pick up books on theatre, on on history or whatever, whatever subject interests me. And I'd, I'd, I'd come across one or two books on technical terms for, you know, for, for, for professionals. And um, they were pretty dry, pretty dry. And I thought it might be quite fun to, to put together a dictionary of using the terms and the phrases which are which are used in the theatre and put a slant to them and make them entertaining but try and keep on the ones which are true <laughs> but the truth about the terminology about about what what they meant uh so that's i suppose that's the uh best way to describe them yes i should i should say you called the book theatre law but yes. the uh the subtitle is a dictionary of backstage language expressions and useful stage knowledge for those theatrically bent or of a curious nature now i think that covers probably most people who listen to this <laughs> podcast so we're on, we're on firm ground here yeah. and i have I mean, to say it is uh definitely not a, a dry dictionary it's got some uh, lovely cartoons in it by simon bond as well which only augment your your uh, slightly tongue in cheek at times uh, entries yes. Uh, and you certainly show off some of your your deep knowledge about the way theatre works. <laughs> yes, but yes, yes. What what they don't see, what people don't see, you see, when they're sitting in their in their seats, in F four in the stalls. Um, Indeed. And uh, I mean, some of some of some of the terminology is is slightly invented, but um, but the but all the theatrical terms are for real. And I hope explained in 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 a in a entertaining way. <laughs> <laughs>
Is yes. that the best way to put it? I don't I, know. I think so. Yes, yeah. very entertaining. And, and you make the point that it's it's of a size where you can slip it into your pocket and take it with you on the on the train. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about the Oxford English Dictionary <laughs> here. We're talking about a very readable and uh, a, a goodly sized book, um, which covers um, different sorts of entries as well. I mean, you do have the absolute technical terms for some things, um, but also there's a bit of history in there yes. um, and, and a bit of... Um, some sideways glances, shall we say, at some of the things that happen in theatres. I mean, there were some entries I particularly liked. The the ones on uh, about the actors' digs, which of course is is such a classic uh, subject, I guess, for for actors to to be discussing. And and it goes back into the days of uh, weekly rep theatre and the like, where travel uh, actors were travelling around. And it sounds like some of the accommodation that they were put into was was pretty terrible. <laughs> Appalling, absolutely appalling, because you, you, you'd you phone up for a... You know, now, now, what's happened nowadays is that digs have disappeared. Uh, but back in mm. the days in the 60, 1960s, 1970s, and it began to fade out in the 80s, um, there'd been digs for 100 years, and they were run by <laughs> usually by pretty formidable ladies who would, um, who would make make a bit on the side from letting out their spare room or rooms to actors. And some became very professional about it. You know, they'd, they'd give you a, a, a boiled egg at breakfast, you know, very professional. And, uh, they, you know, they'd change the sheets, possibly, once a um, week. That's if you hadn't burnt them, because it, most sheets in those days were nylon. And so if you smoked in bed and dropped a bit of ash, which used to happen, suddenly there'd be an enormous hole in your sheet. And the, uh, and the only way to get away with not paying for it at the end of the, uh, you know, without her finding, was to have to change the sheet round so the, the hole was where your feet are rather than up where your head was and been sitting on the pillow. <laughs> we won't mention Often any names. Happened. and Often They're happened. probably not with us anymore. So. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, they're all gone. They've all gone. Yes. I mean, so, you know, there was a, there was a, a deputy stage manager I knew. I mean, he must he must have gone too, but he he started off the tour with um with with three suitcases, and as the tour carried on, the suitcases disappeared one by one, and we couldn't work this out. And he'd always ask when we did the get out, which is when you took the set down at the end of the um end, end of the of the run, whether he could leave early, because. A get out could take, you know, could take 12 hours, depending on the size, up mm -hmm. to 12 hours, depending on the size of a show, which you were getting out. I mean, usually not. It was usually for a straight play. You'd be, you'd be, um, out by um, one or two at the latest. But, um, uh, he'd always go, he'd say, I'd like to leave now so I can go ahead and be fresh for the get in. That's when the, the set arrives at the next dip. So we said, that was fine. We didn't mind, you know, we, it meant we got there later. We could take a later train to the next next port of call. And eventually, he we got to towards the end of uh, of this tour, and he um he only had a paper bag, a big paper bag with his clothes in. We, what's happened to him? And then we discovered that he he'd got into such trouble, money, money, such money trouble. He he would go back to his digs, and he would have to leave his, his, his suitcase in the room because he couldn't leave through the front door on the last, on the morning of the last, of the out. 
he'd have to <laughs> climb out of the window <laughs> and hightail it to the station. <laughs> so he usually took a ground floor room, uh, as far as I know. He never he never injured his feet, you know, jumping from a, a higher level. And and the bad reputation of theatrical people is maintained yet again. Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes. I mean, it's 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 a very it can be a very badly behaved profession. Um, uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, and and you say the actors' digs really don't exist anymore. Very very few, very few now. Um, it is a big problem. It's, it's a, there was a, a thing about it quite recently in in the in the stage because the digs have disappeared. So and and Airbnb has become the rage, but of course oh. mm. the poor old actors only get uh, an, enough touring allowance, probably to cover two nights at an Airbnb out of a week. Right. So it, it's the it's the cost which is soared, um, yeah. and, and and then the, and the old people who used to you know you could get a room in the old days for you know eight quid ten quid and you know. In, in the very old days, <laughs> you could get you know get a room for, uh, well, okay. My very first job, I got I, I was being paid thirteen pounds a week, right. and with thirteen pounds a week, I could eat. Okay, this is nineteen sixty five. You yep. could eat, you could take a room for a week, you could have a drink, and you could put a couple of quid away for income tax, which you were paid gross. Mm. Glory days, absolutely yeah. glory days. Pretty unimaginable now, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, impossible! Impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. So people, a lot of people, can't afford to go on tour, mm. especially if you, you know, if you've got a flat or house, mortgage, you know, alimony, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's always been a lifestyle choice, hasn't it? Being a touring actor, but uh, it yes. just gets harder and yeah. harder. Harder, and it, yeah. it always strikes me that tours seem to go around the country in the most illogical way that they can possibly create. Because one day they're in Glasgow and then two days later they're meant to be in, in uh, Southampton or Yes. Yes, the art the art of the art of booking a tour is is uh, can can go slightly wrong. And presumably that that just comes down to what space is available when and, and you're forced into moving around in that manner. At the time, yes. And and what you what you don't want to do is have what you call a dark mm. week. So say you're in Aberdeen and you're going maybe to Newcastle, yes, but but you can't get to Newcastle immediately after Aberdeen, which you you know that that's a move which isn't too outlandish, 150 miles, so that's all right. But maybe there's Bournemouth is available somewhere like that. But to go from Aberdeen to Bournemouth and then come back to Newcastle yeah. is 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 ridiculous, yeah. You know? So the only thing you can do in that in in that instance is to um, is to put uh, is to have a dark week for the cast and uh, but you've still got to pay. Mm. They could they I suppose you some some managements you know take it out as a you know a holiday week. They say this is your holiday week if depending on how long the tour is. Uh, yeah, uh, but you can't do that very often, <laughs> and so you've got to pay them something um, as a, uh, to, to, not to work. Uh, and of course, there's nothing coming in. Yeah, um, I mean, we're laughing about this now, but it is actually a very serious problem. And touring theatre is is on its knees at the moment in in England, isn't it? Uh, oh yes, yeah. I mean, theatre in general is on its knees. I think in many, 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 many uh, parts of the country. Uh, 
it, it really people are having a very hard time. Um, yes, we haven't. COVID was a, a terrible blow. Um, it put people off going, um, and then the you know the the the, the next crises which have come up, uh, the mm. cost of fuel, the, the fuel prices, and the everything else, and the and just the cost of living has 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 has, has made people very wary yes. of going out these days. In the end, so the whole of the entertainment business is is um, is suffering because of it. So let's dip back in time a bit just to try and cheer ourselves up. I, I was also particularly grabbed by your entry about David Garrick. So perhaps I'll chat about that one as well as an example of what's in the book. Because uh, he, he was quite a character and very not someone I've talked about on the podcast yet, but we will get to him all in good time. Yes, David Garrick. Now, David Garrick, uh, one of my heroes. I mean, the, the, the first, not, not the first, but the, the, the most famous theatre of most theater, most famous actor of, of the 18th century. He, he he sprang to fame with his production, with his performance as um, as Richard the Third. He he was the he was the son of the. He came from Huguenot stock, and his father was a wine merchant in Lichfield, and uh, and he went to the same school as Samuel Johnson. Funnily enough, yeah, they were friends, lifelong friends, and um, he came to London. And decided he, he wanted to become an actor, and managed to get his first job at uh, uh, at a, a theatre to explain that in in the seventeen forties, in fact, throughout the eighteenth century, uh, there were only three or up up to four really legitimate theatres in London, which were the royal. There were two which were the royal patented theatres, which was Drury Lane and Covent Garden. And then you also had Lincoln's Inn Field because the, the, the patent didn't go with the theatre. It went with the people who owned the patent or the patent. So it couldn't, it did move around a bit. And then you had the opera house. You had the King's Opera House, uh, in the Haymarket and you had the little theatre in the Haymarket. And Garrick, after his, um, Goodwin's, Goodwin's Field was his first show. Um, he, was an overnight success. Everyone talked about his performance. It was it was as uh, it was as magnetic as one which had preceded it uh, by about two years, which was Macklin's Shylock. And Macklin's Shylock was the first um, attempt to show the character not as a not as a grotesque comic persona person, but as a you know a, as a, as a tragic figure. Garrick got into good company and found a way of getting the license for the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, which which was on in in a bad way. And his reign started there, and it and it carried on to about seventeen seventy one, and was he was enormously successful at Drury Lane. But he had all sorts of problems because it was it was a very Rumbustious period, as you know, you know, the 18th century London theatre was very rumbustious. And, um, he, he suffered the slings and arrows of the audience. Well, not, they didn't actually fire them at him, but, you know, they, there were, there were riots. There were, there were, there were ticket riots. He put the price up. Uh, there was also, um, um, uh, whenever he brought a French company over, there was usually a riot because we, 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 
we were we, we were not particularly fond of the French in the 18th century, and uh, it was a good excuse to to cut loose and and and, and have a good old riot in the theatre, you know, and throw people out. He had to often, you know, the the army were at times called out to quell the disturbances in the theatre. It was that bad. He he brought over one show called the Chinese Festival, uh, which was a ballet. There was a good deal of hissing, and they said, they said uh, if I may quote, a good deal of hissing, noise, tumult, and commotion in the king's presence, who was in the royal box. His Majesty was amazed at the uproar. But being told that it was because people hated the French, he smiled and withdrew from a scene of confusion. Yes, we worry about audience behaviour now, but when you read about uh, through the history of theatre, audiences have been far worse behaved than we are. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, um, uh, there have been some terrible occurrences. I mean, um, uh, deaths have occurred because of because of people's yeah. bad behaviour in theatre. Um, Sadler's Wells. Uh, several people were crushed to death because of, uh, because of a couple of drunks shouting out what people thought was fire. Of course, fire, of course, was the the great fear of theatre owners mm. uh, up and up until well, it still occurs today. I mean, I I I, I was involved in a fire uh, which almost almost uh, finished off the Cambridge Theatre back at the turn of a century. Uh, and uh, despite all the precautions which have been put in since the Victorian era, but the theatres regularly burnt down. I mean, Drury Lane burnt down twice. Yeah, very sadly, because I mean, a lot of people have died in 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 infernos. My thanks to Nick for taking the time out to talk to me. Although we ended on a rather down note there, thinking about fire and death in the theatre, his Dictionary of Theatre Law is a very entertaining and light-hearted read, which I think anyone with an interest, or even half an interest, in the theatre will enjoy. You can order it from your local bookshop, or direct from Nick from his website, which is www.lnpbooks.co.uk. I've put a link in the show notes for this episode. If you were to order a copy direct from Nick, he'll sign it for you and make sure that it is carefully packaged to survive the rigours of the postal system and get to you in pristine condition. And Nick will be back in a few weeks' time for some more theatrical stories, this time with a distinctly spooky vibe. But next time, it's back to the Elizabethan playwrights, with a look at some of those who now only exist in the shadow of the greats, but who, in their time, produced some very popular plays and enjoyed a level of success and celebrity that tends to get forgotten. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group, or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast, the easiest thing would be to pass on the word to anyone you think might be interested in a bit of theatre history, or if you have a moment, write a review and rate the podcast on your podcast app of choice. You can find details of other ways to support the podcast at the website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.